Hello. Uh, it's good to see you all. Um, I think there's more people returning from holidays, um, so it's good to have you guys back with us. Um, if you are new here, uh, my name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FLM. Uh, if you are new, welcome. Uh, it's great to have you with us, worshipping together with us. Um, for the Year 12 students again, welcome. Uh, great to have you join our family. Um, we look forward to worshipping with you each week uh, in the years to come. You don't need to look nervous. <laughs> we're, a we're a friendly bunch. Um, just a few things before I jump into the Bible reading. Uh, just a, a recap. We're going to have Gabe come out at the end again, and we're going to play a video for you. Uh, but just to re reiterate, I think the 15th is the cutoff. So if you haven't registered, please register. Um, and again, uh, we don't say this lightly. If, if money is an issue, please speak to us. We do not want it to be an issue. Uh, we'll, we'll make it happen. Um, so please have a chat with any one of us. Come up to us. Um, we, we'll, we'd love to be able to spend time getting to know you at camp and just worshipping together with you at camp. So if you haven't registered, please register. Um, I actually met with um, our guest speaker yesterday for a cup of coffee. Uh, I'm very excited and he's very excited as well. Um, and also, um, <clears throat> anyone that's not serving or anyone that is serving and feels they can serve a little bit more, um, praise God, uh, there are opportunities here for you to serve. And we are looking, um, as Elza mentioned, for a few more co-leaders for CG. Um, so community groups, I am a firm believer that community groups are the building, are meant to be the building blocks for any ministry in any church. Um, so if you do have capacity to serve, um, there are co-leading positions available. Co-leading meaning that you don't have to bear the full brunt of responsibility of carrying this thing yourself. Um, you're, you're sharing uh, the load together with someone else. Um, and also, um, anyone that served as a CG member uh, knows that the, the, the training and the equipping process is quite comprehensive. Um, and the CG leaders, that's a community in and of itself that's quite supportive. Um, so if you feel like you're not qualified, um, good, because everyone feels that way, uh, means you've got a humble heart. And if you don't feel you're qualified, that's an indication that you are qualified, uh, because you see, you have a humble reflection of yourself, and um, that, that's the building blocks of any great leader within the church. Um, so if you are keen, please let me know. Please let Grace see it or Nathan know. Um, we would love to have you on board. And for me, I have to say the most quickest way to grow spiritually is to do what Christ called us to do, uh, to serve. So if you are interested, uh, please let us know. On that note, let's jump into today's Bible reading. Last week's passage, this week's passage, and next week's passage are probably the hardest passages I've ever had to unpackage in this series in Mark. Um, so after I read it, I will pray for God to be with us as we try to decipher this apocalyptic prophecy. But we're in Mark 13, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 23. Mark 13, verses 14 to 23. Give you a second to find that passage in your Bibles. And the word of God reads, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard, I have told you, all things beforehand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we enter into what could well possibly be one of the most difficult sections of Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. And as we unpackage and continue to study the longest teaching or sermon in Mark's Gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ about the end, uh, we pray for clarity, wisdom, and most importantly, humility. Uh, let us not be under the pride or pretense that we understand everything, uh, but that we would understand as the Spirit reveals to our hearts. And so, Lord, in this time, we pray for clarity and wisdom. If we have any anxieties from this past week that have been weighing down on our shoulders, we pray uh, as Elsa prayed earlier, uh, that we would cast this fear aside and not allow it to dictate our decision-making and particularly our, our study of Scripture. Help us to approach this text with a clear mind uh, because we need to, especially this passage. And so, Lord, may you watch over the words of my mouth. May you watch over the meditations of our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, I don't know if you remember the last time you laughed the hardest you've ever laughed. Uh, I actually remember, <laughs> strangely enough, um, because I literally thought I was going to pass out. Like I could not breathe. I thought my organs were going to shut down because I was in so much pain from la laughing so hard at a story my friend shared with me. Uh, I have a friend that lives near Auburn, Lidcombe, and he lives, I don't know if you're familiar with that region, but there is a, um, an office works on Parramatta Road near Auburn, and then across the road from that, uh, there's a Hungry Jack's. And my friend shared with me uh, that one day he ate at Hungry Jack's, and he was walking to this furniture, furniture shop down the road. And if you ever see Parramatta Road, there's like, I think it's like three lanes on traffic, of traffic on each side, and during peak hour, it's like they, they go, it's a 60 kilometer zone, but the cars go relatively quickly. It's a very busy, busy road, especially during peak hour. And my friend was sharing with me that um, as he was walking, he had these noise cancelling earphones in, and he used to like to listen to like a lot of grunge and rock. So it kind of drowned out a lot of the sound. You couldn't hear the sounds of the cars. Um, but then he stopped, and he, he, he had to pull one of his earphones out because he heard a lady scream. And he looked up and he saw a lady walking a few meters in front of him. 
and she was carrying Hungry Jack's paper bags and it must have been filled to the top with like Whopper burgers and chips and whatever. And so he took his earphone out to say, well, what's going on? She screamed. And he looked and he was like trying to tune into what she was saying and she said, she, she screamed out loud, someone needs to help him. And he kind of looked at her and he looked at where she was looking. And in... Parramatta Road, there was in the middle, there was like a mini island, a section in between the lanes of traffic going in opposite directions, and there was a little kid stranded there, and he looked very nervous, and this lady was like, someone needs to help him, and my friend said, he confessed to me, he's like, I'm not going to help him, if he's dumb enough to get himself there, he's dumb enough to, he's smart enough to get himself to the other side of the road, I'm not going to risk my life to save this dumb kid. Um, but this lady looked around, and to her credit, she threw her Hungry Jack's bags, Whopper burgers, lettuce flying everywhere, and she ran through three lanes of speeding traffic. She scooped like superhuman strength, must have been the adrenaline. adrenaline. She scooped the kid up in one arm and then ran back, and she put the kid down, and she was greeted by the face of of a very angry little man. He wasn't a kid. He was just a very, very short man. And I remember my friend called me that day. And it took me about five minutes to understand what he was saying because all I could hear was him trying to breathe from struggling so hard. And I could hear someone yelling at the woman in the background. Now, we, we can laugh about it. I laugh. I still laugh. This is like years ago. I still laugh about it now. But to her credit, she saw this young man stranded in the middle of the road and she knew, well, in her mind she thought he was a kid, but she thought there is only one outcome. If it is a little kid, if he tries to cross through three lanes of traffic, she knew what the outcome would be. And she risked two bags of Hungry Jacks to save this little kid. She did not want anything to happen and she allowed her outcome, the outcome that she knew was inevitable, to shape her actions. And the reason I share this with you isn't just because it's the funniest story I've ever heard. Um, but because when it comes to the Christian life, we know what the outcome is. We have an entire book at the end of the New Testament that tells us what the outcome is. But how often have we allowed our understanding of the outcome to shape the way we live today. And we're going to unpackage that because today's passage is an apocalyptic prophecy, a warning from Christ, a teaching from Christ about what's going to happen at the end. And I want to implore with you that, you know, what happens at the end isn't just something we don't need to worry about now, but our understanding, even if we don't fully understand every little, you know, fine detail about the end, about the apocalypse and about the second coming. There are certain facets and elements of it that really should be shaping the way we live today, the way we act, the way we speak, and the way we spend our time today. Now, in today's passage, Jesus continues his Olivet Discourse. And as I mentioned in my prayer and last week, it's the longest teaching in Mark's Gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and it was Jesus' reaction this teaching, this teaching was Jesus' response to questions that the apostles asked. And the questions were, 
when are you going to establish the physical kingdom of Israel? And what's the sign going to be so that we can be ready? And as we saw last week, um, which was the first half of Jesus' response from verses 1 to 13, Jesus painted a grim picture of what was going to happen. Um, like the disciples were waiting for like, you know, the moment it strikes this time, you're going to be the leaders of the free world. That was the kind of response that they were expecting. Um, but Jesus says, no, what's going to happen is that this marvelous temple that you were just gawking at, uh, that's going to be obliterated. This sanctuary of worship that you think is going to be around forever, gone, which happens in 70 AD. Uh, not only that, after I'm gone, there's going to be a lot of fraudsters, con artists, they're going to pretend to be me, fake messiahs. And then not only that, there's going to be wars. Not just wars between Israel and another country, but nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then to top it off, persecution and death is going to come to the church. Uh, it was a grim warning from Jesus. It was a weird reassurance from Jesus saying to the apostles, don't worry, you're going to die. Um, but the silver lining was that in spite of this, we saw that, that Jesus wasn't a sadist. Uh, there was an underlying message that in spite of everything that's going to come, you don't have to be anxious because God is still in charge. This is all a part of God's divine plan. That's why Jesus says that these things must happen. Not let's hope that it doesn't happen, but it must happen. Why? Because God God's plan has already accounted for this. Now, in Jesus' teaching, the Oliver Discourse, before things get better, today's passage shows that it's going to get even worse. Uh, and today's sermon will have a lot of information. Um, I mentioned it was a difficult sermon to prepare. It was difficult in the sense that there are a lot of things about the end that we don't know. Um, and there's a lot of information that needs to be understood to understand understand what we can know uh, and the difficult part was trying not to make it dry and sound like a lecture um, but there is a lot of old testament re references that jesus uses in this teaching and particularly from the book of daniel um, if you read from the book of daniel um, you'll find that half of it is narrative and half of it, half of it is symbolic prophecy prophecy um, but jesus begins today's passage and it says but when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where you ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's the abomination of desolation? What is it? It's a weird term. Um, well, again, it's a reference to the Old Testament. Daniel 9 is where we first see the language of the abomination of desolation. Now, when we think of Daniel, we think of the narrative part. You know, um, Daniel in the lion's den. Or Daniel's friends being thrown into the furnace and them being saved by it's either an angel of the Lord or a pre-incarnate version of Christ. Um, but then if you read through Daniel, there seems to be a sudden shift from a narrative to apocalyptic prophecy. Uh, prophecy about the end times. And the prophecy in Daniel 9 talks about this term, the abomination of desolation. Um, and Jesus references this prophecy, in a sense, to answer the question that was put forward by the apostles. When is the kingdom of Israel going to be restored, and what's the sign going to be? And Jesus says, the sign of when it will happen 
is when the abomination of desolation appears. Which again raises the question, what is that? Um, and to put it in a nutshell, I won't draw it out for too long. It's the Antichrist. It's a reference to the Antichrist. Um, now, like I said last week, the destruction that Jesus prophesied of the temple occurs in 70 AD, uh, which is quite clear because it's recorded in history. So we see that prophecy come to light, but there are other aspects of this teaching that are difficult to unpackage, and we have to do it with a lot of care, particularly when it comes to what the Bible says about the Antichrist. Um, I love horror movies. You uh, 12 students that have come up, you probably don't know because I haven't shared it with you. I love horror movies. I love the idea of ghosts. Um, I'm a very twisted individual. I... I I'll watch the Conjuring series at like three in the morning to be able to go to sleep. Like that, that's the kind of person I am. Um, but when we think of the Antichrist, a lot of it is dictated by horror movies, isn't it? Or like conspiracy theories. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, there was a teaching going around with a false teaching that the Antichrist was going to be this guy that's going to appear and he's going to have the number 666 written on his forehead. Um, and then someone started circulating photos of some guy that had 666 prosthetically embedded under his skin and like that guy's the antichrist uh he wasn't the antichrist um but the thing about apocalyptic prophecy end times prophecy is that the genre the literary genre uses a lot of symbolic and metaphorical language so if you read revelations you probably would have read you know illustrations and imagery uh, about like a, a slain lamb, a lamb that's been killed, that sits on the throne of God and it's got seven horns and seven eyes and you're like, what is that? What on earth is that? What is like this deformed mutant animal? Uh, but then if you understand the symbolism of Jewish literature and culture, one, you'll know that a lamb is a sacrifice and when we look at a lamb, we tend to think of who? Jesus, especially a slain lamb. But then what's this seven horns and seven eyes? Well, in Jewish culture, horns. A horn is the symbol of power. Eye is the symbol of wisdom. Seven is the number of completion. So when you see a slain lamb with seven horns, seven eyes, it's a slain lamb, a sacrificial lamb, that has seven horns, complete power, and seven eyes, complete wisdom. Uh, and so when we read the book of Daniel, when we read today's passage, when we read Revelations, um, we have to read it through the lenses of the genre that it's written in. Apocalyptic prophecy, which uses a lot of symbolism and metaphors. Uh, and if we read through the Bible, we'll see that there, there are a few things that we can know about the Antichrist. There's a lot of things we don't know, but there are certain things that we can know and be assured of without having to speculate. Number one, the Bible teaches that whoever this Antichrist is, whether it's an institution, a person, or an object, this Antichrist is going to set up his throne in a rebuilt temple. So Jerusalem temple gets destroyed in 70 AD. It's going to get rebuilt. Um, the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple. Now, whether it's the Jerusalem temple or whether the temple is a symbol just for the church of God, uh, we don't know. But he's going to set himself up in the temple. And he's going to refer to himself as God or a representative of God. Number two, we know that the Antichrist, according to scripture, will present himself as a peacemaker, uh, which is surprising to a lot of people 
shouldn't be. Because even the name Lucifer, the name of one of Satan's minions, that term means an angel, a masquerading angel of light. So it looks good on the outside, not really good on the inside. But the Antichrist will present himself as a peacemaker and he'll make an alliance, it says, with Israel. And again, Israel could be physical Israel or it could be a representation of just God's people. But he'll pretend to be a peacemaker. And then number three, after pretending to be a peacemaker, the Bible says that the Antichrist will then turn on God's people and he will massacre and attack them and desecrate the church or the temple for a period of three and a half years and he'll kill them because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one more, the Antichrist I already mentioned will then continue to seat himself in the house of God and declare himself to be Lord. He'll take God's title. Now, this probably wasn't the sign that the apostles were anticipating. Remember, in their minds, they're probably thinking, am I going to be the prime minister or the ambassador for this kingdom? Am I going to be the president or the vice president? They were thinking about political power, influence, and status. They were anticipating health, wealth, and prosperity once Jesus became the conquering, victorious military king. But chapter 13 presents a very, very grim picture from Jesus. Things are going to become much, much worse before they become better. Jesus says in verse 19, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the, crea uh, from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Jesus says, in other words, it's not just going to be the worst of times, but for God's people, it's going to be the worst in human history. It's never been, it's not like what you're going to experience it's never ever been this bad and it's never going to get this bad. Like the worst time in human history, congratulations. If you're a follower, this time is for you. Probably not what the apostles were expecting or wanted to hear uh, and they would have been taken aback. And I don't blame them. Because in them, if I were the apostles and Jesus said, Jay, you're going to go, for being my faithful follower, you're going to go through the worst possible things in human history. The worst things that the human mind can imagine, it's going to be even worse than that. Uh, I probably would have turned and said to Jesus, whatever happened to I'll make you fishers of men? Whatever happened to I came that they may have life and have it abundantly? Or come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. This isn't what I signed up for. Like, when I proposed to my wife before we got married, and we spoke about the future, and then I spoke to her parents about our future, what would I have said? I, I gave them assurance. I'll take care of your wife, oh, not your wife, your daughter. I'll, I'll lay my life down for her. I will pledge the rest of my life to make sure I take care of her and protect her. That's what you'd expect, wouldn't it? in any kind of marriage? If they or my wife asked me, what are your plans for the future? And I responded, trust me, one word, horror. The future will be filled with nothing but horror. I'll probably be single right now. 
and for the bride of Christ. Because remember, when the Bible talks about the church, it uses language of marriage. The church is the bride of Christ. And the apostles who are meant to be the foundations and the building blocks of the church, it's like Jesus is saying to them, this marriage is what the future holds. Horror. But like I mentioned last week, Jesus isn't a sadist. Uh, he's not enjoying sharing this kind of news. He's not like, ah, oh, these guys don't know what's in store for them. There is a purpose to this. And horror and death does not have the final say. That's why Jesus, Jesus is sharing this. One, he doesn't want to sugarcoat it. But two, he wants to give them an assurance that when this comes, I'm telling you, so it's not going to be a surprise. When this comes, know that this is not the end. Horror and death isn't the end. I'm giving you this because there is a promise that underpins this. Because as we saw last week, Jesus explained that death is not the end. The reign of the Antichrist in today's passage revealed in the verses. The reign of the Antichrist is not going to be the end. In fact, the reign of the Antichrist is not even going to be end. It's not eternal. Three and a half years. Not eternal. Why is, is he sharing this? Why is Jesus sharing horror? But don't worry, it's not the end. Because he wants to give an assurance and a promise that God, despite this, is still in charge. Even when the most horrific circumstances, the worst times in history come, remember that God is not absent. Remember that this isn't outside of his plans. God is sovereign. God is still in charge. What is the end? Not the Antichrist, but the Christ. Who has the final say? Christ. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And because he is the beginning and he is the end, we as God's people have a duty to unpackage what God's word says, not just about the beginning, but about the end. And not just unpackage it, but allow what we find out when we unpackage it to shape the way we live today. That's why I shared that illustration at the beginning. Like I do like sharing funny stories, but there was a purpose to that. What happens at the end, the outcome, is meant to shape the way we live today. Now, often it's tempting to think, you know what? Revelations is hard. The apocalyptic prophetic part of Daniel is hard. Chapter 13 of Mark's gospel is hard. Partly because we live with the mentality that we don't think the end is going to come in our lifetime. Because we don't think it's going to come, we don't think it's that important. Another reason is probably because, if you're like me, you grew up reading it and thinking, this is hard to understand. What are these bizarre creatures that God's word keeps revealing? And I used to have the mentality that, you know what, don't need to study about the end times because it's difficult to understand. And you know what, when the end comes, we'll know what's going to happen because we'll see it happen in real time. Um, so I'm not going to worry about it for now. But I would say to you now, uh, as your pastor and as hopefully your friend, that it matters. You might not understand every detail about what God's word says of the end, but the fact that this 
prophetic apocalyptic prophecy was written with an original target audience of the early church should be an indication that they considered these words to be of great significance. Right? Because Revelation was written to the churches. Mark 13 was written to the early Christians. Apocalyptic prophecy was written to the audience initially of the people at that time. And we today, we're closer to the end than they were. Because that generation has passed and gone. So if it was important to them, shouldn't it be even more important to us who are closer to the end than they were? And we have to remember as we read this, be reminded what God or Christ reminded the apostles. God is still in charge. Because we live in uncertain times, whether it's the end or a signal of the end, who knows? But it does resonate with what Christ said. And in the midst of uncertain times, we should do well to be reminded that in the midst of uncertainty, God is still in charge. God's plan is still sovereign. And his instructions about the end times weren't written just so that they don't have to worry. Jesus didn't give his Olivet Discourse to the apostles simply to tell them not to worry. He gave it to them and to the early church so that it could shape the way they live today. God, what he writes about the end, let me repeat that, is designed to shape the way we live today. This passage in particular is a timeless passage. It shows a teaching to the apostles but Mark is very careful to word it to show that it's a timeless teaching for God's people for all time because in the opening verse he puts in brackets, let the reader understand. Not just the apostles, but for God's people in generations to come that is going to read this gospel. Let them understand. And so that raises the question, if it's meant to shape our understanding of the end and how we should act, in light of our understanding of the end, what does Jesus say we should do when the end comes? Well, he gives warnings. In verses 15 and seven, or 15 to 17, he says, Let the one who's on his housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Jesus says, when the Antichrist appears, don't waste any time. Don't waste time and don't allow anything to slow you down or hinder you. The houses back then had flat rooftops and people sometimes went onto the rooftops to relax. Kind of like a, a balcony or a nice rooftop veranda. And Jesus says, when the Antichrist appears, don't even bother going down into your house and collecting your valuables. Just leave. If you're in the field and you're working and the Antichrist appears, don't even pick up your coat. Just leave. Don't let anything slow you down or hinder you from action. And for the women who are pregnant, 
or a new mother's taking care of their babies. He implores the church to pray. Pray for what? Pray for action and the removal of hindrances for these women. Whether it's a physical or a spiritual hindrance, Jesus calls all of God's people to pray. This is an imperative instruction or a command. Pray. Why? Because in the midst of turmoil and hardship, Jesus knows it is easy to assume you are forgotten by God. And when you're forgotten by God, or when you think you're forgotten by God, that's when you allow hindrances to slow you down. That's when you allow the world and the things of the world to slow you down. But Jesus says to pray. Because prayer is powerful. Not just in the sense that God answers prayer. But prayer reminds us that God has not forgotten us. Prayer is the act of faith. Not just to remind us that God hasn't forgotten us, but the act of faith to show that we believe that God has not forgotten us. And prayer is the means by which God demonstrates to us that he has not forgotten us. Why? Because God is still in charge. Even in the midst of the worst of times, God is still in charge. God still acts and moves even in the worst of times because he is still in charge. He is a sovereign God. There is nothing that Satan or the principalities or the spirits of darkness can do to defy or slow down God's plan. If Satan does anything, Scripture teaches us he can only do it because God in his sovereignty has allowed it. Now verses 20 to 23 says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs, Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect, be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, within Christendom, God's kingdom, uh, there are people that hold to reform theology, and then there's people that don't. Uh, and for those that don't, uh, they don't accept something called the doctrine of predestination or election, um, that God predestines who is saved, God predestines who's going to be a part of his kingdom. Uh, for me personally, if you deny that, today's passage becomes impossible to exegete and unpackage. Um, because today's passage, Jesus says that God's plan involves cutting short this period of devastation. For who? For the sake of the elect. When scripture speaks of the elect, it implies people that God has chosen to be his people. If you look at Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him, from before when? From before the foundation of the earth. Before Genesis 1, he already decided. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Romans 8. And we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God knew, or he foreknew, he 
also predestined or predecided to be conformed to the image of his son. And then he goes on, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. Theologians call that the golden chain of redemption. Uh, John 15, 6, the words of Jesus himself, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. 1 Thessalonians 1, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. And the reason uh, I personally hold to Reformed theology uh, is that I believe this doctrine of election, this doctrine of predestination, this idea that God decides, this is what gives believers an assurance of salvation. This is what gives security to the promises of Jesus. Not just simply at the time you believe. Not just at the time you get saved or you go to camp and you commit your life to Christ and you feel like something happened in your heart. Not just then. But the assurance of salvation, the security of God's promises according to Scripture should sustain you not just when you get saved, but throughout your life until the end. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus signifying the end. And so when we talk about the gospel and living in victory, it's not meant to be a flimsy victory. Um, it's not one day I feel like a victor because my faith is on fire, but then the next day I'm not too sure because... I woke up late, I'm frustrated. But according to Holy Scripture, faith in Christ, repentance and faith and our trust in Jesus is the evidence that he chose us from before the foundation of the earth. And if he did choose us from before the foundation of the earth, John 10, 28, the words of Jesus says that Christ gives us or the life that Christ gives us means that we'll never perish. And then Jesus says in John 10, 28, that no one, no person, no institution, no spirit of darkness will be able to snatch us out of his hand. Why? Because God has chosen you. Because of the assurance we have through the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination, that's what gives today's passage power, assurance and security that even if the worst times in human history come to the church and Jesus promises that it will and that it will come on a scale that human history has never seen, we can still cling to today's passage and move forward as individuals living in victory even if physically we are killed and martyred. But as we saw last week, God still does give a warning. He gives a warning to the people he's chosen. And that warning, which was riddled through last week's passage, was be careful. Be on your guard. Be on the lookout. Why? Because almost as a bookend to last week's passage, Jesus says fake messiahs are going to come. Frauds who claim Either that they are the Christ, or that they were sent by the Christ, or that they hold the authority 
of Christ. Some of them, uh, some of them Jesus says, in fact, they're going to be quite convincing because today's passage says they're going to perform signs and wonders. Legitimate miracles. But Jesus says, don't be fooled. Even if they are legitimately supernatural miracles, don't be fooled. Why? Because they're not signs that are performed to point people to Christ. Rather, to point people away from Christ. Remember when we studied signs and wonders throughout our series in Mark's Gospel? What did I say were the purposes of Jesus' signs and wonders? Jesus' signs were very careful and intentional to point to his identity and who he is. The signs and miracles aren't performed so that we can be sign and miracle performers. But they were pointing to the reality of his identity as the Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament. This is why I am skeptical of faith healers. People that claim to have the supernatural gift of healing. I do still believe God heals people, miraculously and supernaturally. I'm not, I'm not denying that. I believe that God is a faithful God that often answers the prayers of the saints in healing people. But whenever I see an individual claim to hold the authority of God and claim to possess the power to perform signs and miracles, I tend to think of this passage. Because most of the miracle performers I have seen firsthand uh, tend to perform the signs so that it will point to themselves. And that goes with anything. Uh, I know that this church has a very Holy Spirit focus, which is awesome. Uh, because the Holy Spirit is the helper that Christ promised. Jesus says, I'm going to ascend and the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to be the helper. Um, but even for the helper, the third person of the Trinity, yes, he is God. And yes, God, even the third person of the Trinity, is to be worshipped. But the ministry of the third person of the Trinity is to point us to the second person of the Trinity, the Christ, the mediator who restores our relationship with the first person of the Trinity, the Father. And just as Jesus warned about fake messiahs, the Apostle John, who was sitting, listening to Jesus say this, warns in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Beware of fakes. Beware of fraudsters. Which raises the question, how do you know it's a fake? How do you know this guy that claims to hold the authority of Christ, how do you know he is a fake? How do you know... What someone declares to be a moving of the Spirit of God. How do you know it's a fake spirit? I'm going to give you the answer. It is fake if it contradicts God's word. It is fake if it does not point you back to Christ. Every heresy. For some reason, Koreans seem to produce a lot of fake messiahs. There's so many Koreans throughout history that I am Jesus. 
Um, there's a documentary on Netflix about, I think they did like a 10-episode series where they cover three fake Jesuses. One of them's even a woman. Um, how do you know? Because fake messiahs will, at the end of the day, say, I am Jesus. Congratulations. And so with today's passage, uh, where you know, it's been... I thought, I thought this sermon would be short, but it's been lengthy. Uh, we're not going to have lengthy observations because I've already made plenty for you. Um, but I just want to recap three things that I mentioned in my sermon that I want you to reflect on this week as I come to the end of my sermon. Number one, the end. What the Bible says about the end, it matters. And what the Bible says about the end should shape the way you live today. Just as that brave woman raced through three lanes of traffic on Parramatta Road to save what she thought was an infant in danger. Our understanding of the outcome should shape the way we act today. Number two, just as I mentioned last week, remember that even in the worst of times, God is in charge. God's plan cannot be frustrated, slowed down or hindered by the forces of darkness. And finally, number three, test the spirits. Test it. Paul says at the end of Corinthians, test yourselves. Test everything according to God's word and to see if it points you back to Christ. Because Jesus warned, fakes will come. Frauds will come. And the only way to test it is by what God has revealed in his word the Holy Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today's passage. We thank you that you don't just give us teachings about the past or the present, but you give us some form of understanding of what is to come. Uh, Lord, we this was a very difficult passage and I probably could have presented it even more clearly. Uh, but Lord, I pray that the word that was preached today would find a place in the hearts of all who listened, including myself, that what you have revealed through Christ about the end would shape the way we live today. And that we would always be willing to test the spirit, a spirit when it reveals itself, a representative that claims to be from God when he or she reveals himself to see if it aligns with your word and to see if it points to Christ. And if it doesn't, give us the strength to flee from such things. But if it does, give us the strength to immerse ourselves in celebrating genuine works of the Spirit when he does move amongst his people. Be with us, Lord, and equip us to be a discerning people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.